0: I next met with Dr. David Spriggs to chat about gynecologic cancers, primarily cancer of the ovary, beginning with a meeting plenary presentation by Dr. Bob Berger of a major Phase three gynecologic oncology
1: group, Phase three trial. It was a presentation of GOG 218, which was a three-arm randomized trial in upfront ovary cancer. And so they were previously untreated patients, About two-thirds of them were either suboptimal or stage 4, and about one-third were optimal stage patients. And the trial design was the kind of trial design that you need in order to get approval for a new agent in ovary cancer. So there were three arms. The first arm was a carbotaxol arm with placebos. The second arm was carbotaxol plus bevacizumab, and then a placebo during a maintenance phase. And then the third arm was carbotaxol plus bevacizumab and then bevacizumab for the maintenance phase. So there were two questions being asked. One was did bevacizumab improve the outcome of carbotaxol? And the second question that was being asked was did maintenance for or consolidation for one year after the end of treatment result in a better outcome for patients with ovarian cancer using bevacizumab. Now, the dose of bevacizumab was relatively high compared to some other diseases. It was 5 milligrams per kilogram per week. So there is no doubt that it is plenty of bevacizumab. You might get the same result with less bevacizumab, but it's not certain whether or not that's true. So in the three arms, they accrued roughly 600 patients in each arm. So it was a very large study and they were able to make these comparisons quite comfortably. And what they found was that there was a very modest effect of bevacizumab when it was given during the chemotherapy and not afterward. And that didn't even really reach statistical significance. And then the third arm, where bevacizumab was given from cycle 2 all the way to one year post-end of chemotherapy, was substantially better in terms of progression-free survival compared to the other two arms, particularly compared to the placebo arm, which is the key comparison. And the progression-free survival was about 3.8 months longer for the Bevacizumab maintenance consolidation arm than it was for the placebo arm. And so the the consequence was that since progression-free survival historically has been a very good predictor of overall survival advantage in ovary cancer. And that's been looked at by the FDA. And the FDA has generally said that they are willing to take progression-free survival as an approval endpoint for ovarian cancer in the first-line setting. It met its objectives. The hazard ratio was quite good, and the consequence was that it was perceived to be a positive trial. Now, interestingly a couple of caveats. The first is that the survival data, while not mature yet, and there aren't a lot of events there, did not favor bevacizumab. There was no disadvantage, but it was roughly a wash in terms of overall survival. The second thing that struck me was that the outcomes in terms of progression-free survival for both the bevacizumab arm and the control arm were relatively short. I believe the progression-free survival data for the control arm was about 10 months and the progression-free survival for the Bevacizumab was about 12 and a half. Now, if one looks at the progression-free survival overall, what you see is those numbers really correspond to sort of the worst outcomes that we've seen over the past decade with ovary cancer. So if one looks, for example, at GOG-152, which was the study where they looked at interval debulking led by Peter Rose, that group, which was only suboptimal patients, had a progression-free survival in both arms of about 12 months. And the study that I led, which was only stage 4 patients and very bad, stage 3 patients that could not be intervally debulked because they had liver mats or other things, had a progression free survival about 12 months. So, considering that this trial had about a third of the patients as optimal disease, I was struck by the fact that this was not a huge win in terms of overall outcome. And in some senses, one might look at it and say, well, it's a little disappointing. The second thing about it was that one of the areas of ongoing controversy in ovary cancer has been the value of consolidation therapy with paclitaxel. And paclitaxel gives about a 7 month advantage in terms of progression free survival and still doesn't show any overall survival. Now that study was closed early and there are a variety of problems with it. We hope to have some additional information later. But I think it's a useful benchmark as you look at what's happened with Avastin in terms of progression-free survival and say, well, it's not the only thing that will give you an extended progression-free survival if you continue to give the drug to the patient.
0: I guess the issue of how or is this going to convert to survival is of great interest. And the discussant, Dr. Eisenhower, went through a bunch of things that I thought were really interesting, although I'm not sure I totally understood it. I think what I understood is that it's kind of hard to predict and that potentially this could not have any effect on survival, but she also put up a scenario where maybe it would have an effect on survival as much as I think she actually quoted 15 months. Yes. I guess based on the relative improvement. At this point, how do you see it both in terms of clinical practice, in terms of, you know, should patients be offered this, are you offering this to patients, and also the design of ongoing
1: studies? Well, I think it's a very tough call. The NCCN, in their guidelines, have decided not to elevate Avastin to a point where they would consider it to be part of the standard of care for frontline therapy. At my own institution, we have taken a similar approach that we believe that at this point, the data suggests that it is rational to give people, women with ovarian cancer, bevacizumab in the context of a clinical trial, but till there is a survival advantage, there are significant, although rare, toxicities associated with bevacizumab, and one would like to see some kind of a survival advantage before one goes forward. Now, I think in our institution, bevacizumab has become one of the medicines that are used for relapse ovary cancer, and one of the possible interpretations of the progression-free survival advantage, but not the overall survival advantage because bevacizumab is commercially available, is that late crossover occurs. And these women, this trial may never show a survival advantage because the women are getting bevacizumab later. You can put that in a different light and you can say, so there's a fixed benefit to bevacizumab, but it doesn't matter when you get it. So at this point, I think that bevacizumab has an established place in the treatment of ovary cancer, but I'm not yet convinced that it needs to be administered to patients in the frontline setting.
0: Now, how has this affected discussions about current trials and future trials?
1: So right now, all of the arms of the GOG-252 trial, which is the successor trial for this, and the optimal trial for the GOG, which will include some other strategies will all have bevacizumab in their upfront treatment. There are two other trials that will need to be done. One is a similar trial to the one that was reported, the 218 trial, that's being done in Europe, and that one will come online sometime in the next six to 12 months. And then there is a second-line treatment, the so-called Oceans trial, where it's carboplatin, gemcitabine, plus or minus bevacizumab with an extended maintenance phase, that also has completed accrual and will be reported out sometime in the second half of 2010. So I think that by the end of 2010, we're going to have not only this trial, but two others to really begin to have a good sense as to what the impact of Avastin is. And so that will, I think, probably drive the decisions going forward. But I think in the next six to eight months, I've elected to hold off on the Avastin and frontline treatment.
0: Let's go into the paper by Karen Gelman, which to me, I thought was one of the best papers at ASCO, even though it wasn't even the oral ovary session, but was in a PARP inhibitor special session that was incredible, looking at the PARP inhibitor olaparib, in actually it was ovarian and breast cancer. Can you comment on that?
1: Yeah, that was an interesting study. It used the PARP inhibitor olaparib and it showed once again that it was possible to treat not only patients with known BRCA mutations, which was presented a couple of years ago in the ovarian cancer session and continues to be quite encouraging. But this was part of a theme of so-called brca where patients have a BRCA-like phenotype. And what it showed was that if you had a loss of BRCA function, which occurs predominantly in high-grade serous cancers, that many of those patients would still respond to a PARP inhibitor and would have a very positive outcome. The interesting thing about that was that while the ovary cancer population was quite sensitive, the triple negative breast cancer population was almost a complete shutout it was a shutout. There were breast cancer patients who responded, but they were not triple negative patients. They were BRCA mutated patients with a different phenotype of the breast cancer. So it looks as though BRCA mutations alone will not be sufficient, nor will it be perfectly predictive in terms of going forward. So I think it's logical to expect that many ovary cancer patients will respond whether or not they are carrying known BRCA mutations. But it looks like the triple negative breast cancer patients, if this holds up, may have to go on to other kinds of therapy.
0: Although I guess we should point out that this was using the PARP inhibitor alone in contrast right. to the BSI-201 study that was reported last year in triple negative breast cancer where they used it with chemo. Right. But to me, to see, I mean, they had 25%, 35% responses. Of course, it was a small number of patients, but they clearly had objective responses, advanced ovarian cancer without BRCA mutation. She even showed a patient. Right. I mean, has that been seen before or even looked at before?
1: I have seen this data before. And as you know, there are half a dozen different PARP inhibitors. And it gives me the opportunity to point out that just because the company calls it a PARP inhibitor doesn't mean that all of these are the same. They have very different pharmacology associated with them. And I think as we become more sophisticated about these drugs, they're going to turn out to be different. But having said that, the class will be active in some high-grade serous ovarian cancer patients without known BRCA mutations. I think that's certainly true.
0: So there was another presentation, it's 5004 there, in the same session, and this kind of thing is being done a lot nowadays, and I've seen a lot of papers like this in breast cancer, trying to come up with a gene expression profile of, quote, brackiness, and whether or not that correlates with the response to PARP inhibitors. Can you talk about this particular data set?
1: Yeah, I thought that was an interesting paper as well. This group, several years ago, published a paper in JNCI, which showed that one could find that in the sporadic tumors, there was still a gene expression profile that looked very similar to BRCA-mutated patients. And so they took this forward. They used some preclinical data with some of the BRCA-mutated pancreatic cell lines, the Kpan cell line, and were able to show that there was a pretty predictive signature. And this was, I thought, encouraging. But it brings up an important point and that is that we also know that these patients with BRCA mutations can back mutate to a functional BRCA phenotype. And so if one is looking to make a signature and is trying to correlate that with PARP response, it's going to be really important to make sure that the biopsies that you're using to make those signatures are current and not historical biopsies from three years ago when the patient was initially diagnosed. But I think that it would be surprising if there weren't some kind of a signature for this. And I think where we're probably going is that there will be a signature that will help us identify patients in the upfront setting who will need to get carbotaxol plus a PARP inhibitor. And if Bevacizumab eventually goes into that frontline therapy, it becomes a very complicated and somewhat expensive kind of proposition. So I think that we're going to have to bear in mind the fact that we want to be sure that we're doing things that change survival and we're doing them at the time they're going to have the most impact.